0: Hey Crystal. Hey Joseph. Remember when we dove into the one of the most contentious stories in the Bible and didn't resolve anything?
1: I do remember.
0: Do you wanna do you wanna dive back in? Let's Welcome to a Word from Our Outpost
1: with Joseph and Crystal Gruber.
0: A podcast for Captive disciples who are wrestling to be missionary-minded in their normal everyday lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Direct, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspiration and carry them on by thy gracious assistance that every word and work of ours may begin in thee and by thee be happily ended. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen.
0: Abraham and Isaac.
1: Abraham and Isaac. So I told you that we were only allowed to have three points for this podcast.
0: And I came up with four.
1: And then you realized.
0: That they all make sense.
1: They go along with the four senses of scripture.
0: Right. So last episode, we were talking quite a bit. When I say last episode, I do understand, dear listener, that we did do a sort of cheaty episode last week to advertise for our marriage workshop, which you can still check out if you want to. The last episode regarding the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, uh, I think what we were doing was trying to unpack some of the baggage that's often associated with it and say... Is this baggage even sensible, right? When people say, you know, God is commanding child sacrifice, uh, Isaac quite likely is not a child. Most rabbinic traditions puts him uh, at least into his teens. And you might say, what's the difference? It's still murder. I I mean, there is a bit of a difference if the victim is a willing victim, and that will come up later. Um, But there are so many other differences between the typical child sacrifice story which we don't hear about, right? It's not a culturally relevant story today to tell a story about sacrificing one's child. Um, And so we have this one remaining story, and we're like, oh, that must be about child sacrifice. But it's a little bit like if we had, oh, I don't know, um, like if we had a play by an abolitionist who was trying to make the point that slavery is wrong, but had to portray slavery in order to show that it was wrong. Hmm. Right, It's like, okay, out of context, it seems like that abolitionist is actually pro-slavery because there's slavery in there. Uh, but if the whole point of the play was to guide people away from slavery, that would be an anachronistic sort of approach to take it out of its cultural context, its historical context, and say, well, it is what I say it is.
1: Yeah. And, and this is interesting when we involve the four senses of Scripture because this gives us opportunity... For those that don't know, aren't familiar with the four senses of stri- scripture, I've been calling our children by the wrong names, and I'm having a lot of trouble with words, so we'll see how this goes. Um, the four senses of scripture are the literal sense, so looking at what's literally going on, the allegorical sense, looking at how does this point to who Jesus is, the moral sense, which looks at how does this affect my life, morally speaking, and the anagoical <laughs> anagogical sense which is looking at how does this point us to heaven and so we're going to talk a little bit about how do we unpack the story of abraham and isaac through those four lenses
0: yeah so and the, the literal sense is you know the most important in the sense that it's the foundation upon which the others are built um, if the story doesn't make sense to us literally speaking or at least literarily speaking it's going to be really hard to talk about anything flowing from that. And so to talk about, literally, what is this story doing? What is this story about? There's a huge amount of context, right? There's 21 chapters of context prior to chapter 22 of Genesis, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So we're not going to give you all 21 chapters, uh, but if you did want to, I'd be happy to go through all 21 chapters with people some other time, not on a podcast. Crystal would not like that. She's looking at me like she wouldn't like that.
1: No, no, no. I'm looking at you. I, I just want to give our listeners a little bit of context to how you spend time with scripture. You have probably spent, what do you think, 100 hours with this, with chapter 22, with the sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, between Bible studies, taking it to prayer, like just looking at the text and thinking about it. And talking to God about it.
0: Oh yeah, probably. Maybe more. Oh, I don't. I've never thought to keep track of that. Do people keep track of things like that?
1: No, but I. I just want to like. I think when sometimes people think about. Oh yeah, I've read the story of Abraham and Isaac. They've like read it through once or twice. So I just want to give a little context to the fact that you've literally spent like days of your life. Yeah. Thinking about this, and for oh the in last the past like three two weeks. weeks, three weeks you have been like. Dreaming about it and waking up thinking about it and going to bed thinking about it. Oh, it's the last it. thing
0: that I think about before I fall asleep and the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. And, and praying about Literally. it.
1: <laughs> and, and so just to give a little bit of context about like the the richness of it that we are not going to capture in the podcast that I'm going to try to keep short and succinct as best as I'm able to. Okay, so the literal
0: <laughs> sense, right? Remembering the context that all of the gods nearby, they demand child sacrifice. It's not an uncommon thing. In fact, it shows how great one's God is that they would be worthy of the sacrifice of your child, right? And so here you have Abraham walking in this land, a stranger in a strange land, and he's following an invisible God who has not commanded the sacrifice of his child yet. And so the question might arise to other people's minds, well, how great is your God, Abraham, if he's not even worthy of your son? And so this is an interesting thing, because this story shows us, one, that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac is worthy of the greatest thing that we could possibly have. But, unlike all of the other gods, he is so great that he does not actually want us to commit any sin, to do any evil, in order to give us that thing. Right? He does. He desires us to be rightly ordered more than he desires the good things that we have. And we're going to talk a little bit more about gift later, but this sense that this story is not saying, oh, this is a capricious God who might demand the the life of a child. This is saying the exact opposite. All of the other gods might demand the sacrifice of a child. This God, the God of Abraham, does not command it and will not allow Abraham to go through with it. So to be able to say both, yes, Lord, you are worthy, and yes, Lord, you are so great that you do not actually want us to follow through with this is an important thing to to say. And it's so important and so well stated that we lose sight of that because of how well stated it was. Mm. We as a culture are so influenced by this story without even realizing it.
1: Yeah, which is pretty powerful to think that when we look at the message that this story was trying to communicate 22 chapters into the pretty thick book we call the Bible. And the fact that we have this reaction that how abhorrent it would be for this idea to even be proposed and to realize the whole reason why we don't, the whole reason why we do think it's an abhorrent idea is because of this story.
0: Yeah. And to see... What happens, because people will say, well, what about this test thing, right? And I think people have a a misunderstanding of what a test might be, right? A test is to show what is right and what is wrong, what is on target and what is off target. And in this story, Abraham shows that he's on target in that he's willing to give to God all the good things that he has. The best thing that he possibly has is that which has been given to him by God, his son Isaac, and he's like, I will not withhold even my son Isaac from you, Lord. So the test is to say, where is Abraham's heart in need of correction? And with surgical precision, to target that and to say, this this is the thing that must be resolved. That which in your heart that would allow you to strike your son, you must stop. So anything that is good in his heart has been affirmed, and anything that is evil in his heart has been checked, right? To see that that is one of the things about this as a test is to to educate the heart of Abraham in what it is to be a father, right? Because a father sort of by definition prepares the child to to go out into the world, to be offered to the world, to be offered to God. You know, like that's the role of the father is to prepare the son to face God. It is not the role of the father to harm the child. So that line from the angel Uh, in verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Right? That line is so important as an instruction for the heart of Abraham. And so to say, okay, there is a test, and this is how Abraham did, and with tests comes correction, and he receives the correction. Not only does he receive the correction, but all of his descendants receive the correction in the form of this story.
1: And that is a really fascinating piece. One morning at breakfast, you asked me, how would you feel about the story if you were being told it by, like, if you, if Isaac was your, like, great-grandfather? And I thought that was a really important question of, okay, if this story is repeated so that we know it, and I'm thinking about it through the lens of being a descendant of Isaac, that, that implicates me in something,
0: Right. You would not exist if Abraham went through with the sacrifice of Isaac. Right. So all of the Israelites can point to this moment where like it's a little, um, it's a little insight into the grace of God working in Abraham's heart. You know, the, the grace of God working in Abraham's heart that, that corrects him and that moves toward blessing and that secures the safety of the son. Right. That that's the movement of God in this story. And that, that implicates the Israelites, right? They are all descendants of a would-be victim. And so they look at the world differently, knowing that they were spared, knowing that um, God is on their side, God takes their part, and it gives them a heart for the victim, right? The Israelites are told again and again to have a special heart for the widow, for the orphan, for the stranger, for the destitute. Uh, this heart for the... For the other, this heart for the the one who has been victimized. I think this story goes a long way to preparing their heart for that.
1: Yeah, which is a really neat insight to what's actually going on here in the literal sense. There's another piece here.
0: Oh, did you want to transition to the next sense or was that what you were about to do?
1: I was going to have one more point.
0: Oh, good, because I had another point too. Is it the same point? I hope so. Go ahead.
1: Um that we know from the story that this was an imperfect sacrifice that there while God doesn't require the sacrifice of the firstborn son God still is worthy of worship and so the Israelites then seek out worthy worship moving forward and we'll talk more about that when we get to the allegorical
0: sense right which was what we're about to do but but to see in this story you know it's instructive in and of itself But it's also incomplete, right? There's a sense in which the command of God, God who spoke directly to Abraham at the beginning of the chapter, he's never truly gainsaid by himself. The angel stalls Abraham before striking Isaac. But the word of God is still living and active. It's still waiting to be put into effect. And so there's a sense that the word of God is waiting for completion, Right, the ram sacrifice is not the sacrifice that they're looking for. The sacrifice of Isaac would not have been right as well. And so one of the reasons why Jewish people blow into the shofar, the ram's horn, at several different feasts, there are many reasons for blowing into the ram's horn, but one of them is a, re- is a reminder both of this moment that God provided a ram as substitution, but also to look forward to remind God, you said... That you would provide a sacrifice and this place becomes called you know god will provide or the place where god will see provide will see um they're they're related etymologically Um, so this sense that even this story in the literal sense it's actually pointing to needing to be completed and this this is this is what we should be seeing in the old testament time and again that the story is it'll stand on its own but there's always something in it where you're like, huh, There, this is pointing somewhere, isn't it?
1: And to whom is it pointing, my dear Joseph? It's
0: pointing to Jesus, right?
1: Shall we talk some more about that, also known as the allegorical sense?
0: Right. Or some people would call it the Christological sense, but allegorical, I think, works pretty well. Yeah, So, so all of the elements of this story we see play out in the life of Christ in one way or another, right? So like the obvious things... Right, You have the story of a man carrying the wood of his sacrifice on his back, going up a hill. You have the fact that the actual sacrifice is found with, uh, uh, sort of crowned with thorns, right? The, the ram's horns are caught in a thicket of thorns, um, and Jesus clearly wore a crown of thorns on the cross. Um, you see that he's the son, the only begotten son, the beloved. That is Jesus, to a T, um, Another interesting thing, it's a three-day journey, right? And the Israelites, this three-day journey thing is fascinating, right? Because it's here, and then in Exodus, God tells Moses to ask Pharaoh for permission to lead all of the Israelites into the wilderness for three days that they might learn right worship of God, they might be able to make an acceptable sacrifice to God, knowing full well that Pharaoh will never let them do that, Right? And why would he do that? Because there's something about a three-day journey of sacrifice that is actually going to be effective in the history of Israel, and that will come to fruition in Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. right. On the Mount of uh, Transfiguration, Jesus talks to Moses and Elijah about what, about the exodus that He's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Right? Exoduses are usually from some place to another place. And yet it's going to be the exodus that's going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And so it's this beautiful uh, coming together of this moment in Genesis 22, uh, but also the thing that God himself was talking about in Exodus when he was calling the Israelites out for an acceptable worship for a three-day journey. So that part, that was a new thing for me, recently seeing that. I was like, wow, that fits so neatly because the Exodus, in God's ideal command, which, is yet to be, which was yet to be fulfilled by the Israelites, was just to do a three-day sacrifice that would be perfect. And they end up going to Mount Sinai and receiving the law and finding a way to worship that would be acceptable. But it's not quite complete. It's not perfect in the way that God's command to Abraham and then to Moses uh, was going to be.
1: And this is an interesting piece with the allegorical stuff because I, you, can, I, you can go on and on and on.
0: I'll do a little bit more.
1: You can do a bit more? A little bit more. Okay.
0: Right. So one of the reasons why Abraham and Isaac doesn't work out as a sacrifice, that's acceptable because the priest would have to kill the, the victim. And in Jesus, the priest and the victim are one. Right, Jesus is both priest and victim in his own sacrifice.
1: He offers himself. Right. What?
0: And so that resolves that tension. <laughs> there, there are a few more things that I would like to point out. Can I do the Cain and Abel one?
1: Do the Cain and Abel because we left the teaser.
0: Okay. Well, them. there's two parts to the Cain and Abel, but I'm going to do both. Okay. Guys, bear with me with this one. There's something that happens in Genesis 3 and then in Genesis 4 that very few people talk about. But this mirroring of language in Genesis 3 when God tells Eve uh, that her desire shall be for her husband, but he shall rule over uh, her. So your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's in Genesis 3.16. That language of desire being for the husband and him ruling over the wife In Genesis 4, after Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable, God says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Right? So God is saying, if you entertain sin, you're going to have the same relationship as a husband does to a wife in a fallen world. So you're going to be entering into a covenantal fallen relationship with sin, because sin's desire shall be for you, and you must rule over it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I don't want to lose people on this one. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you know right now, this is a little bit out there, but I think it's fascinating. And so I'm going to keep going. And if I lose you, Crystal, then I know that I should just go on to the next Cain and Abel point. That's also good, but maybe less confusing. So there's this p- section in Paradise Lost where the devil wants to get out of hell. And... Death is blocking the way. But fortunately, his daughter Sin is around. And Sin is the mother of death. And Sin is the child of Satan. And Sin was like, Hey, devil, remember me? I'm your daughter. You impregnated me. And look, there's my child, death, guarding hell. And the devil says, Oh, yeah, daughter slash wife thing. Will you help me get out of hell so I can tempt people? Anyway... The, the dynamic, though, right? The dynamic that the, the union between the devil and sin was death. I think that there's something similar to that going on in Genesis 4, where God is saying, if you unite yourself with sin, the fruit of that will be death.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Because Cain united himself with his sin, and then what happened? Abel died, right? He kills Abel, death. right?
1: Okay, so bring me back to Abraham and Isaac.
0: Okay. Abraham is told to sacrifice his only son. He doesn't have just one son. He has two sons. Uh And in a spiritual sense, this is actually the condition of fallen man, that we've actually, you know, we, when we reach the age of reason, if we consort with sin, if we entertain sin and, and unite ourselves with sin, the first thing that we produce, or one of the things that we will produce is a kind of spiritual death. Uh And so even Abraham, however great he may have been, is not totally innocent, And so he, too, has sin, right? And so literally speaking in the story, he has another son named Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that prevents him from following the letter of God's command yet, right? And that's why that command is waiting for Jesus to fulfill it. Uh, But in a spiritual sense, like, nobody is actually capable of fulfilling that command other than Jesus, because it would take somebody who is sinless to say, I have not actually consorted with sin I do have, I have no other children, but that which God has given me.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So Abraham is not actually capable of fulfilling this, but the command lingers for the people of uh, his descendants, right?
1: Which command lingers?
0: The command to take your son, your only begotten son, uh, the son whom you love, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Isaac, to the place that I will show you and there offer him up as a burnt offering. Okay. So nobody would be able to fulfill that unless somebody were to enter the scene sinless.
1: I feel like there's a dot that's not connected for me, but hopefully it gets connected for our listeners.
0: (sighs) Well, listeners, take a look at Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, and I think it's a genuine insight. I think it's a real thing. I think it's helpful for me to understand why Abraham is given a command and he's not able to fulfill it, but nor is anyone else after him until Jesus.
1: Because of death.
0: Because of our relationship with sin. Okay. Yeah. And our relationship with sin causes spiritual death. Right? Otherwise, we wouldn't really need much of a savior. Yeah. Like, if the stakes are pretty low, having a savior is pretty... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be like, okay, Superman just came because, I don't know, I fell off my bike and I was going to get scraped. It's like, it's awesome to see Superman, but salvation, uh, not impressed. That's... (laughs) okay, I'm not going to cut this from the podcast, even though you're giving me the quizzical look. Like, did you, what What was that?
1: <laughs> I'm excited to continue to explore it with you. I mean, this is a podcast for people who are wrestling, which is different than the podcast for people who have figured it all out. That's true. So.
0: Yeah, I I talked with several other people about the Cain and Abel thing, and they're like, maybe you should just do a whole podcast on that sometime. Yeah. I was like, no, I want to bring it up for this one because it made more sense of Abraham and Isaac for me. And maybe somebody out there is going to say that makes more sense of Abraham and Isaac for me too.
1: I really hope it does. I'm sure it will. And maybe someday we'll do a Cain and Abraham and Isaac podcast to unpack it even more. In the meanwhile.
0: In the meanwhile.
1: I think it's time for this line that I typed out in our notes for today's podcast. <laughs> i wrote joseph brings out more christological things until crystal stops him
0: (laughs) oh yeah you you literally you (laughs) literally wrote that in there so the 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 other christological thing that should make more sense to people is isaac is pure gift to abraham Mm -hmm. abraham did not earn him Mm -hmm. um, and he was totally given by god right you know the the three angels appear and say, in a year's time, you're going to have a child. Uh, he's 100 years old when he's born. Uh, Sarah's 90 years old. She's never been able to have children. They do know where babies come from, so that's not the issue. Um, so Isaac is pure gift. Mm-hmm. And so when God says, "Would you make this offering of Isaac? Will you will you give back that which you have received?" The invitation there. As he's ascending the mountain of Moriah, which will later be the hill of Jerusalem, which it will be where the temple is built, and the other hill where Jesus is crucified right next to it. So there's some debate whether Abraham would have gone to this hill or the the other hill, which hill it was, as he's ascending the hill with Isaac.
1: Real quick, in case that got missed. Yeah. Isaac was sacrificed either on the same hill that Jesus died on or on the hill that the temple was built on.
0: Yeah. That's all. Oh, yeah. Some people may not know that. Yeah. Whoops. It's pretty cool. Whoopsie.
1: Yeah. Anyways, you were saying.
0: As they're ascending the hill, there's this beautiful line in, oh, back in Genesis 3, flip back to the right story. So in verse 8 of chapter 22, there's this line, so they went, both of them, together, right? The union between Abraham and Isaac, they're walking you, they could have just said in this, so they went up the hill. But instead they say it says, So they went both of them together, right? That that kind of repetition of their union as father and son. And in the midst of that union is Abraham also desiring to make a gift of Isaac back to God the Father. That this is actually the one of the closest approximations of Trinitarian love right and this is what jesus is pre prefig- is fulfilling and this is prefiguring right god the father so much loves the son that he gives him everything and god the son loves god the father so much that he gives him everything and the love between them is so real that it is itself another person and so god the father loves his son abraham and abraham loves god the father and in this moment there is this desire to make concrete, to make manifest the love between God the Father and his son Abraham and to make that gift be Isaac. But he can't do it, right? That's why this is a prefigurement and not the fulfillment. And this is what Jesus is capable of doing. Jesus, who is God the Son, who from all eternity has been plunged, is part of Trinitarian love, is making manifest that gift to the father. But to see that Abraham is approaching Trinitarian love as he's going up the hill, and that with him, Isaac is entering into that love, that not only is Isaac a willing victim, his will and Abraham's will seem to be aligned in that line. So they both went up, so they went, so they went both of them together. And to see that that is actually an incredibly beautiful line of the father and son are joined in common purpose in love of god and a desire to worship him rightly
1: so that's awesome because it's pointing us to the trinity plus we know there's we could go on and on about all the ways that this points us to christ and to the trinity as well this also helps us figure out morally speaking how does this apply to my life which is the next
0: yeah so since on our facebook group the question was raised how does Abraham differ from terrorist bombers or crazy people who killed their children? And a particular case was recounted, um, which was pretty horrific, of a woman who clearly had a bunch of mental problems ended up um, killing all five of her children. So really messed up. Um, hopefully the podcast up to this point shows some of the differences, right? That there is an education going on here, that God is a good and just God who is educating the heart of Abraham away from child sacrifice and making a definitive stance against it. And so anyone who says that God told me to do this evil thing, such as kill my child for him, that, that if they're listening to any kind of a voice, it is not the voice of God.
1: Yeah, God is good and, and will not ask us to do evil even for a good end. Yeah. And and that's something that we can use in discernment, where if we're not sure if we're hearing God's voice or not, we, we can ask the question, is this good or not? And if we're not sure, then we need to form our consciences to what is good or what is not good. And we might be wrong.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the best places to look for um, that this is how people have interpreted the story is, again, the Israelites did not sacrifice their children, right? No Israelite read the Torah and left saying, huh, I wonder if God might call me to kill a kid today, right? The opposite would be in their minds. It, they they would be like, oh, God's against this kid-killing kind of thing. Um, and all throughout the Old Testament, God is very clear do not engage in the other cultic practices. Do not worship the false gods. Their worship is an abomination. They, they do horrific things. Um, and killing children for the sake of false gods is like at the very top of God's list of why you shouldn't be following these other gods, right? And so that, that to me, sounds rather convincing about why this is not a story that could legitimize killing children, whereas following other gods and other voices might. And we had made reference in our prior episode on this story um, that the kind of logic that goes into some people's decisions to uh, abort their child in the womb, to to kill their child in the womb, um, is actually more similar to the kind of logic that went into the cultic practices of false gods. People saying, you know, the, the the child would be a drain on my finances saying that money is more important than the life of my child or this is getting in the way of my success path or i will never be fruitful in this area other area of my life um or this will you know be a blow to my social standing right something else is being worshiped that is not god because the the only times that the sacrifice of a beloved child comes up is this story and then jesus and the story of jesus is that he's both priest and victim and the story of this one is that the priest is not allowed to fulfill the the activity of a priest in the sense of um executing the victim so so that so that there's
1: oh, there's a uniqueness to this particular story that is just not present other places which is part of why it's such a contentious story and such a powerful story and such a well-known story, even if people haven't spent time with the actual text.
0: It's also a bit of a um, red herring, right? It's it's like when people talk about the Catholic Church's stance on science, and the only story that people will talk about is Galileo, without having read any of the actual letters that went back and forth about the case, without reading any of the actual accounts by people who were there for it.
1: Are you opening another can of worms?
0: No, I'm just saying that the the people who will talk about um, God and child sacrifice sound somewhat similar to the Mm -hmm. people who talk about the Catholic Church and Galileo because if I ask them to come up with another example, any other example of the Catholic Church acting against scientific inquiry, Mm -hmm. no one is able to come up with something. Ever since the Cosmos show, they'll say this, you know, Bruno guy he wasn't a scientist and had really strange views. But other than that, people can only point at Galileo without even understanding the case of a Galileo. Yeah. And and granted, it's a very confusing case.
1: That's why I called it a can of worms.
0: It is a bit of a can of worms.
1: But I think the the point being that that there is something particular and unique about Abraham and Isaac that when we look at the the literal story, like we already talked about we can see the moral sense that we can get out of this is different than what you might think by just like a quick breeze through of the story without the context.
0: Yeah. So like the question for the moral sense is, how can we be like Abraham? And how can we be like Isaac? Mm -hmm. How can we offer to God something rightly? And how can we make of ourselves a self-offering to God? Right Saint Paul talks about making our of ourselves a spiritual sacrifice, an intelligible sacrifice. Um, so we don't want to do it willy-nilly, but we do want to say like I want to offer myself to the greatest good thing out there. I want to serve that. I want to lay down the things that I do before that. I don't want to lay down the things that I do before uh popular opinion or before fads of the day or before um this particular person's affection or or fleeting fancy
1: and and also recognizing that this teaches us that we can lay something down before the lord and he doesn't take it away and and i think that at least is really powerful for me to realize when i give god the thing that i love the most he he doesn't slaughter it he doesn't just take it away He actually gives it back to me, but he gives it back to me in a better and a more abundant way.
0: Yeah. Oh, real quick. Can we go back? Because that reminded me of one of the other things that happened as Abraham was ascending the mountain that the the letter to the Hebrews tells us is that he got a glimmer of an understanding that the resurrection of the body could be a thing.
1: I think we talked about that a little bit. We did,
0: but I wanted to bring it up this time to sort of flesh out the literal sense. Like in... In the journey, in the testing, the best possible things are coming to the surface, as well as something that needs correction. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's coming to the surface is a belief in the resurrection, and I think that's important to note. Yeah. Okay, we can move on.
1: Okay, so when we planned to do a podcast at all on Isaac and Abraham, we said, Uh let's talk about the Eucharistic imagery, which is also the anagological, which...
0: Well... I, I'm i putting it with the anagogical. We already talked about the anagogical a little bit about the, the foretaste of Trinitarian love.
1: Yes, that's true. Um.
0: So can I just, I'll do the Eucharistic stuff real quick. Okay. Because you don't want to do a, a third podcast on this. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh, so a couple of things. One, we talked about the allegorical sense that Jesus making of himself a perfect offering to God, the Father, God the Father receives him and gives him back to himself in the resurrection. Um, That we see this as a sacrifice because Jesus said that it's going to be a sacrifice because he instituted it sacramentally first in the Eucharist. And he gives us the Eucharist as a way to participate in that offering, right? If only Jesus can make a perfect offering and we desire to worship God rightly, the only way we can worship God is by uniting ourselves to that perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And the surest way to unite ourselves uh, to that sacrifice is to have a common union with that sacrifice, to have communion with that sacrifice, which is to receive Holy Communion at Mm -hmm. the Mass. Mm -hmm. And that that's what the Mass is. The Mass is the playing out of that Trinitarian offering that God gives us himself, and God gives himself back to himself and brings whoever uh, of us that uh, wants to come with him right this is a cool thing in Matthew's gospel I'm reading through Matthew's gospel with the group of guys right now and Jesus will say I'm going over there now and then it will say you know there's a huge crowd and he'll say I'm going over there now and his disciples followed him right and and that notion like whoever wants to participate in the saving act of Jesus is welcome to Mm -hmm. um so there's that Eucharistic imagery right like How do we have access to that sacrifice? How do we participate in it? It's through the Mass, um, through receiving his body, blood, soul, and divinity, which is the perfect offering that he is both priest and victim of. So that's one piece. Probably could have gone a little bit more deep into it. Another piece, though, with the sacrifice of Isaac that I think is so beautiful as a type. So it's pointing both to um, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus on the cross you know, this is what Trinitarian looks like in our fallen humanity. Um, so it prefigures that through the sacrifice of the ram and through the the union of the Father and the Son and the offering of the Son to God. So it, it, we can see how it prefigures Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary. But the thing that I think is so fascinating about it is that it's also prefiguring the Eucharist in the unbloody sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac is offered to God the Father and God the Father doesn't refuse him right this is not a rejection of Isaac Isaac is offered to God the Father he's not offered in a burnt offering but he is offered to God and God says basically that he accepts that and that unbloody offering of the son to the father is what we participate in in the eucharist at mass <laughs> so that's that i there's there's well, I'll, I'll say this other thing because it's related to, to the to the mass, is that the question is raised in Abraham's mind as he ascends the mountain, and perhaps even in Isaac's mind as they ascend the mountain. If this is the one through whom all of these descendants will flow, how is a dead man going to produce fruit? How is a dead man going to produce children? Right, and it, this is an interesting question because it's a question that comes up first in Genesis three and four because, uh, one, Adam and Eve fell and experienced a kind of spiritual death, and yet Eve is called the mother of all the living. And so there's this question of, how do you be a mother, how do you be a father when you're actually dead in some sense? And we see this again with Abraham and Sarah, who are unable to have children. Abraham is ancient, Sarah is ancient, and there's this line in the New Testament, you know, he was like one dead, basically because of his age, how is life supposed to come from one who is as dead? And then with Isaac, this question becomes so clear, how is, how is life going to come from one who is dead? And this is the question that I think is answered so beautifully in the story of Joseph in the New Testament, for he made himself like one who is dead, in that he took in Mary and her unborn child, knowing full well that he would not have children biologically that he would be dead to having children so that new life might come into the world. And this is what Jesus did, is that he went went to his death that we might have life. And this is what St. Paul does in choosing the celibate vocation. And to see in Isaac this moment of, oh, this is this is the question right here, a dead man producing life, and it's brought into beautiful fulfillment, in these, in these three, you know, pre-Christ, Christ, post-Christ figures, but also in the discipline of celibacy found in religious life and in the priesthood, that there can be real life brought into the world through one who has made themselves like one dead. Right when when some people or when people join particular religious orders, they don't have like a big party in the sense that um, you might like at a wedding. They have a funeral for the person joining the religious order because they're going to become like one dead. What? Yeah. I don't remember which religious orders, but... Some of them do. Yeah.
1: Fascinating.
0: Yeah, but to see the priesthood as an acceptance of this moment in Isaac's life of saying, I, w- I, I know that there is life to be produced, this command to be fruitful and multiply, and I'm going to accomplish it through the embracing of a kind of death. And I think that makes the celibate vocation all the more beautiful and something that I respect and admire very much uh, from afar as I am sitting by my wife. <laughs> um, but to see, like, in the Eucharistic imagery at the Mass, the priest has actually taken upon himself the role of Isaac, who has, beca- um, and obviously in its fulfillment, he's acting in persona Christi Capitis. Right in the in the person of Christ, the head, um, but we see in the priest also that little flicker of, oh, this is what Isaac was about. This is what this story was pointing toward. This is our way of experiencing it now, which is also pointing toward our final union with God in heaven, where worship of God will be complete and total, and and actually answering the desires of our hearts, and yeah. we will be dead. Uh, But we will also be born to a new life. So, I mean, we will have died. We won't be dead. Anyway, that's the story of Abraham and Isaac in a 50-minute (laughs) nutshell-ish.
1: In the second 50-minute nutshell-ish.
0: Oh, yeah. We have the other podcast. Yeah. Anything Um, else from the story that we should hit?
1: Not in this podcast. Great. But, as you had mentioned with one of the points, we do have a Facebook group, which... We really enjoy interacting with And watching interactions happen with And the more the merrier And the more interactions, the more fun Yeah And it will probably Feel free to
0: push back on any of the things I say in this podcast Because I, I know Crystal might be done with this story I know that I'm not
1: I'm not done with this story I just am done with it for tonight
0: Gotcha Fine distinction to be made To be sure
1: So with that Let us know what you think
0: Feel free to share this episode or the prior episode or both with other people. Uh, I really do invite people to sit down and really take a look at the text and read it closely. Uh, Oftentimes in discussions of of Scripture, people can go way off text and then it...
1: it, It's a different conversation. It's a different conversation. Which is fine, just as long as we're clear that that's what's going on. Yeah. And with that...
0: Oh, real quick. Again, we're going to plug the fact that we've got this Facebook uh, group for uh kind of marriage workshop. Yeah. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a thing that we're doing and you might be interested.
1: It's pretty fun. It's a three-part workshop. Last week's, well, four-part, yeah, four-part workshop. Last one will be on Sunday in the live fashion. May 31st? Yeah. Yeah. 2020?
0: 2020. 2020.
1: We'll probably do more of them but- between in the future so if you're listening to this in like 2027 and we're still podcasting we might do more marriage workshops so yeah, don't lose hope okay in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen heavenly father thank you for the richness and depth of your scripture i pray that you would give us the grace to continue to wrestle with it and um, i pray for friendships with whom we can also continue to dialogue and learn more about you and more about each other we ask all this in your holy name amen
0: amen in the, name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit amen take my hand, and let's be on our way and now finally I can say that I love you yes I love
1: From our outpost to yours, thanks for listening. And a special thanks to John Mark Scope. That's
0: S-K-O-C-H.
1: For the music.
0: Check him out on Spotify.